All right, comrades, so welcome to the People's School. You know, this class was inspired by the current experiences we're in now. Um, we're in a period which we haven't really seen since, you could say, the 30s, uh, in terms of the extent to which fascism is arising again. And uh, one of the consequences of that is we have had a necessity and we need to work with groups that we maybe aren't used to working with. Uh, and so with this presentation, we looked into our history, we looked into the theory, um, and we basically sought guidance for where we're gonna go with that. So this is what we found. So what we'll be learning today is we'll be looking at sectarianism and its consequences throughout history when communist parties have been sectarian. We'll be learning from the Farmer Labor Party and the La Follette movement of the 20s. And we'll be discussing the need for the People's Front and building a broad coalition fight against fascism. For sections on sectarianism and its consequences. So what sectarianism is uh, within the context of our movement, it is basically refusal to work with groups that do not meet some sort of standard of ideological or more moral purity. It's generally something which is, is associated with the ultra left as opposed to a right opportunist issue both the left and the right, whenever you deviate from Marxism, Latinism, both serve the forces of reaction in the end. And the consequences of sectarianism have been observed time and time again throughout our movement, throughout our history. It means we will be isolated from the masses and we will be irrelevant within the greater working class movement if we fall into this. Lenin wrote about the dangers of sectarianism and he denounced it in his classic polemic, left-wing communism, an infantile disorder. This was back in the 1910s. Uh, one of the forms of sectarianism, which he observed at the time, was the refusal of certain communist groups work within reactionary trade unions, as is described in the following passage. This is from left-wing communism, chapter six, should revolutionaries work in reactionary trade unions? This ridiculous theory that communists should not work in reactionary trade unions reveals with the utmost clarity the frivolous attitude of the left communists towards the question of influencing the masses and their misuse of clamor about the masses. If you want to help the masses and win the sympathy and support of the masses, you should not fear difficulties or pinpricks, chicanery, insults and persecution from the quote unquote leaders who, being opportunists and social chauvinists, are in most cases directly or indirectly connected with the bourgeoisie and the police, but must absolutely work wherever the masses are to be found. You must be capable of any sacrifice of overcoming the greatest obstacles in order to carry on agitation and propaganda systematically, persistently, and patiently in those institutions, societies, and associations, even the most reactionary, in which proletarian or semi-proletarian masses are to be found. The trade unions and the workers' cooperatives, the latter sometimes at least, are the very organizations in which the masses are to be found. So if you look in the history of the Communist Party, as written by Comrade William Z. Foster, he clearly emphasized how today we should be working with all people in a coalition on an issue and bring unities to that coalition, not bring disunity to the coalition. This was exemplified in Robert LaFollette's presidential campaign in 1924. It attracted much support from American farmers, workers, and the petty bourgeoisie. However, the LaFollette movement was not a revolutionary movement and contained many reactionary tendencies, such as white chauvinism. The Communist Party USA, then called the Workers' Party in the early 20s, made the mistake of not affiliating with the LaFollette campaign through its mass organizations. This meant that the party was largely isolated and irrelevant from the largest farmer labor movement in America at the time. The consequences of the Communist Party USA's failure to fully engage with the La Follette movement in the 1920s serve as a warning for the present day. Next slide. So this is exemplified in the text, the fight to unify communist work and coalitions is shown in the history of the Communist Party of the United States, chapter 15, the Communists and the La Follette Movement, which says, it is clear that in this complicated fight for a Labour Party, 
the Young Workers Party in its eagerness to help the working class to break out of the deadly two-party trap and to establish a labor party made some serious errors. The most basic of these was to permit itself to become separated from the broad movement of workers and farmers gathered behind La Follette. Nevertheless, through the mass organizations, it could have functioned as the left wing of the La Follette movement, even at the cost of a qualified endorsement of its candidates. The basic reason given by the Workers' Party for not participating in the La Follette movement, the fear that the small party would be engulfed by this broad, petty bourgeois-led movement, was not a sound conclusion. The fact that the party, at the time of this broad movement of workers and farmers, was compelled to put up its own candidates was proof that a sectarian mistake had been made. The La Follette movement represented a united front of workers, petty bourgeoisie, and farmers in the struggle against monopoly capital, with the petty bourgeoisie and labor leaders in control. Time, experience, and the work of the communists were necessary to change that domination, but to withdraw from the movement, as the communists did, was a political error. The party should have gone along in critical support of the La Follette movement. Thus, it could not only have carried on effective work among the masses in motion, but could also have avoided much of the party's later relative isolation. Yeah, real quick, who are two or three groups that Lenin or the communists around that time, even Stalin, uh, would have worked with who weren't wholeheartedly communist? Or were there, are there two or three? That's it. Thank you. I don't know too much about it, but they worked with like the Mensheviks for the Russian Revolution to overthrow the Tsar. And of course, they after that was successful, they had to struggle within the, within the group of people that were doing the revolution to come out with a socialist um, rather than social democratic conclusion. Yeah, um, I just want to say that if communists do not intervene, social forces are not going to stay still. Our political enemies and our political antagonists are not going to stay still just because we stay still. I think this is a prime example of the failure of communists to intervene politically. the example of the La Follette Farmer Labor Party. Um, if our enemies are able to take advantage of, you know, us being stuck in the mud, then the situation will work out more to their advantage. A recent example of this, I would say, the Rage Against the War Machine. We, as the American Student Union and the PCUSA, decided to intervene. We set up a table, and we were part of. We were probably the strongest left force at that rally. If we hadn't intervened, there would not have been a strong presence at that rally. There wouldn't have been a strong Marxist-Leninist presence at that rally. And, you know, people would not have heard our message. So, you know, communists have to intervene if whether we like it, our audience or not. It's just it's a matter of life and death for building our party and getting out of, you know, the tiny left movement and getting to the actual masses. Yes, one example I can highlight is Lenin worked with the Mensheviks still, especially Kerensky's government, when General Kornilov was advancing to restore Tsarism and on that conditional basis defeated General Kornilov. Okay, thank you for that addition. Okay, some example. Lenin, but also in uh, February 1918, the power has been taken. And uh, there is Germany that is pushing for the uh, Treaty of Brest-Litovsk, which is a disaster for Soviet Russia. They're about to lose all Ukraine and all that. They don't have the means to resist. But at one time, there is this guy named Raymond Robbins. He was the American uh, leader of the American Red Cross in Russia, and he served as a U.S. ambassador, sort of speak, he made close contact with Lenin and saw him three times a week in his office. And uh, he proposed to Lenin, why don't you stay in the fight against Germany? You know, we're not supposed to stay in the fight, right? Against one imperialism for another. But Lenin said, yeah, sure I will, in exchange of food and weapons. 
Finally, uh, the president of the US was uh, Wilson. He, he didn't accept that, okay? That's an example. Another example, Stalin, World War II. After the German invaded, 90 seconds. Some, some Tsarists said um, willing to come back to Russia to fight the Germans, and they were Tsarists. Lenin said, yes, go ahead, come on in. We're going to take you as allies now. And also he allied with the uh, Orthodox Church, which before was, you know, the, um, the ultimate base for the Tsarism as well, right? But during that time, he found them as allies, okay? Not before. So two examples, good ones. Thank you for those additions, comrade. Earlier, uh, a comrade had talked about uh, the early 1910s, and we heard about Lenin, the left-wing communism, and infantile disorder. But we also heard uh, some. Uh, there was a comrade commenting. This is before the actual revolutions, uh, before w World War One. At that time, there was a lot going on within Russia, and the Bolshevik Party was doing all sorts of things, working within the labor unions, was making alliances here and there. And we will have to republish this book because previously we did as Red Star Publishers, but it's called The Bolsheviks in the Tsarist Duma. And what's intriguing about today's class is uh, that book in particular, which talks about what the Bolsheviks did, the alliances they made and, and the work they did, and also the traitors they had, because they one of their representatives in the Duma, Malinovsky, was actually an Ukraine spy. Uh, but Lenin said he did more work for us than he did for them because he, he amplified their message. But we, I wanted to recommend that book, The Bolsheviks and the Tsarist Duma. And on that point in particular, it's interesting those who we, we mentioned before are sectarian and don't want to work in alliances with other groups are also the same people who say we should not have a representative in, for example, Congress. Okay, thank you for that addition, comrade. Hey, everybody. Um, I can think about uh, when it comes to coalition building, um, the second international, you know, everyone, the Bolsheviks were trying to, you know, have everyone oppose the war, but certain ones uh, capitulate to opportunism to support their own country and ended up, you know, the World War One ended up becoming, you know, a disaster for all of Europe. And so the Bolsheviks have always tried to, you know, extend their hand. And I can also think about the Constituent Assembly. You know, um, the Socialist revo Revolutionaries had the majority, but when it came to the issue of, I believe, workers owning and having democratic management over industry, the Socialist Revolutionaries voted against it. And that's why the Bolsheviks disbanded it because it's revisionism at its highest. So, um, so they, they've always tried to you know extend their hand and as communists you know even if it's just on single issues with say the libertarian party or if it's anti-war you know we should extend that handout as an opportunity to um you know try to convince people that you know we're not that bad and this is what we actually represent because a lot of them just haven't read theory and just don't know you know they, they just know from what they've seen on the television on their tv screen so when we are coalition building you know, just work where we can, but always try to convince people, you know, with, but I believe in the foundations of Leninism and in left-wing communism, um, it's, they said that um, never compromise on foundational principles, but you can compromise on strategy and tactics when it's relevant and based on the certain conditions, so. All right, yeah, I wanted to say that this is a very important class tonight, very timely one, of course, especially we're on this trip in New York City to build coalitions on the um, unifier of the defense of Cuba. Uh, what I wanted to say is that we need to understand that in different situations, we will work with different groups of different ideologies on the specific issues we agree on. And that means almost anyone we can work with on an issue that we agree with. Uh, the way that I see it, the only ones that we won't work with are fascists, imperialists, and the records of our party. Now, not all conservatives are fascists, and some are valuable anti-imperialists. Not all so-called communists are anti-imperialists as they put off. So coalition building takes analysis, it takes communication, it takes nuance, and it takes discipline. And so I just wanted to uh, say that, and I'll give more examples later of the uh, 
coalition work that we've been doing this weekend so that comrades understand just what we're talking about here. Okay, thank you for that comrade. Um, and we'll get into that more about coalition building. And so keep your hand up if you haven't spoken yet and we'll get to you. But for now, we'll get back to the slides and I will share my screen. All right, thank you, comrade. The next section is on coalition building, the building of a united people's front against fascism. So we'll give some history here. The seventh Congress of the Comintern the International Communist Organization led by the Soviet Union was held in 1935 amidst the encroaching threat of fascism. The Congress recognized that the changing conditions required a turn away from its previous policy of class against class towards the development of a people's front, also called a popular front against fascism. The communist movement must now respond to a similar situation in the world today where fascism fascism is experiencing a resurgence amidst a deepening global crisis of capitalism. The fascist movement today is led by NATO and its proxy states, as exemplified by the current Ukrainian regime. The Communist Party USA, as a member organization of the Comintern at the time, dutifully followed the new line set about by the Congress, according to democratic centralism. Earl Browder was the chairman of the CPUSA at the time. The next passage is from his text, People's Front, written in 1938. It explains the necessity of unity among all anti-fascist forces in the fight against fascism. This is from the People's Front, chapter 10, The People's Front Can Defeat Reaction. A fundamental question with which the world as a whole is confronted at present is whether the capitalistic system of wealth production has not perhaps permanently broken down. Such doubts, combined with the present enormous increase in profits, have given rise to a determination among the most powerful capitalists to make use of this period to consolidate their power and establish guarantees against any effective challenge to their rule. Reactionary forces, who if they win in their aims, would carry our country far on the road to fascism. Nothing short of an enduring, far-sighted, and courageous alliance of the liberal middle class, the socialists and communists can keep the middle class and the workers from abdicating to fascism and the whole world from being precipitated into another war. We communists had independently come to the same conclusion. We were assisted in this by our study of the development of, in Europe. There we saw fascism coming to power in those countries where labor was divided and where the progressive forces had not formed an enduring alliance against reaction. We saw in France and Spain where the progressive forces did unite against fascism, that reaction could be checked and democratic institutions preserved. We saw that fascism was not inevitable when the progressives were able to unite their forces. We learned the fundamental lesson of the people's front, and this is key. Unity means victory over reaction. Now we'll go into what's called the outstretched hand um, advanced by the French Communist Party in the period of the People's Front. 87 years ago, the Secretary General of the French Communist Party, Maurice Therese, extended his hand to Catholics and to the right in the name of national unity in the face of the fascist threat. This speech of the quote unquote outstretched hand foreshadows the victorious alliance that will allow the popular front to come to power. The speech still resonates today as if it had just been delivered. With nine days of legislative elections, which promised to be decisive, Maurice Torres, Secretary General of the French Communist Party, amazed when he launched on April 17, 1936, the policy of the outstretched hand towards Catholics and the right in the name of the Union Nation against the fascist threat. For the PCF, which had campaigned since its foundation in 1920 on a quote unquote class against class line, fighting both the right and the socialists, this was a major turning point. What does Therese say in this historic speech? A wind of distress is blowing over our beautiful country. For five years now, 
the economic crisis has been raging in industry, agriculture, commerce, and public and private finance, he attacks, in terms that seem very contemporary to us. For this persistent crisis, he blames the 200 families who dominate the economy and politics of France and the dictatorship of the banks. Here again, there is no need to emphasize the proximity to the revolt against the liberal oligarchy expressed by the massive protests that are raging across France lately. Then the communist leader denounces the false alternative offered by the far-right leagues inspired by Italian fascism and Nazism, which tried to seize power on February 6, 1934 in France. But the most astonishing thing about the speech is at the end of it. Quote, we extend our hand to you, Catholic, worker, employee, craftsman, peasant, we who are atheist people because you are our brother and like us, you are burdened by the same worries. We extend our hand to you, national volunteer, veteran who has joined the cross of fire because you are a son of our people. You suffer like us from disorder and corruption because you want like us to stop our motherland from slipping into ruin and catastrophe. And we'll break for discussion. Hello, comrades. This, this topic um, very quickly reminds me of the, the union, the Amazon union organizer, Chris Smalls. I can't really speak to his political affiliation. I would suspect he's a Marxist, Leninist, I don't know. But he was able to um, reach out to a broad group of workers and accomplish something. And I'm sure I'm sure I'm preaching to the choir and everybody's up on this. But that's just an example, a modern day example I can see of this type of work in action, this type of coalition building. But that, that's, that's all I had to input. Excellent addition to that. Thank you, comrades. Um, it's really to add to the answer of what the other comrades questioned before, um, what kind of groups would Lenin um, have worked with for coalition building for a successful revolution. And here's an example of what, of what he did do. Number one, one of the primest examples of how, how the revolution was successful and who he built a coalition with, number one, and it's also leading into what it says we need to be reaching out and building coalitions with outside our comfort zone, people that we have not even yet started to because, quote, unquote, it's uncomfortable. For example, um, Lenin began immediately understood for a successful revolution. It's better to have their cooperation than find you need them and not have them when you need to use them. Unfortunately, history repeats itself. That means, number one, seeing if you can infiltrate law enforcement and the military and get their cooperation of coalition building. Thus, if he hadn't had that, the revolution would not have been as successful. So talk about getting out of our comfort zone to have those because history, sadly, comrades, is gonna repeat itself. Now, in an ideal world, we'd like to think we could pursue the means of peaceful means, but without those elements, we have to have those as a in part of the coalition. And right now, seconds. the culture in, the, in our military, in the United States is almost just about the same where a lot of the lower um, rank men and women in uniform, non-officers, are very much in the same position as the everyday common soldier or sailor, as back in like Russia. They do not want to be there. They don't like it. And they're often abused by the higher ranking officers. That's going on with, Too like, say, people that struggle with gender or whatnot. So a very fertile grounds to be building a coalition. Thank you. All right. Thank you for that. Let's go to the next comrade. I guess I have, uh, I would just like to hear perhaps, and maybe it'll come up later in the presentation. Um, so I'm more than willing to wait for it. But uh, a discussion of some of the probably, I don't know, the, the most easily conceived of counter arguments to what we're discussing, not just, you know, oh, you, obviously we're talking about uh, coalition building with people who disagree with us on like perhaps different political points, you know, conservatives, things like that. What do you do when you're confronted with, say, um, a committed liberal who uh, has spent a lot of time fighting on, a, like, say, abortion. 
what do you how do we explain ourselves to people who would in other circumstances are also our allies or have been our allies when they see us then also working to co I mean I, I mean I can conceive of a few responses but I would also like to hear perhaps a discussion of that if other people also have some perspective to offer I hope my question makes sense Thank yeah you. and just to clarify your question comrade you want to know the responses to what other people will say like we can't organize with liberals or sorry can you just clarify your question one more time of course yeah so if you have a discussion with a liberal about organizing with conservatives for example they're going to say ah but what about their stance on abortion are you saying you don't care about a like a woman's right to choose what happens to her own body don't you care about you know these issues or our conservative perhaps let's say they would be upset about the fact that we're organizing with liberals and i know like the obvious answer is some of what we've discussed right but like especially especially for the liberals because historically um in the united states especially um most coalition building and like most public ways that socialists have been working has been with liberals around those issues in fact i would say one of the things it seems to me that the pcusa is trying to do is push against this notion that communists tail after the democrats so what do we say to the liberals we've worked with in the past when they're mad about abortion for example Okay, I think we got that. I'll comment about that real quick. It's one thing to talk to individuals. It's another thing to organize on a mass line, to organize with a coalition. That means organizing um, with other groups of people. So when we try to individualize people, that's a different story. Like, uh, I don't know how you can convert your uncle that maybe is racist, but you you can that's one thing, but you, we're talking about a mass organization here and how do we actually organize there? We're against fascism. We're against the monopolist powers and that we have to kind of strategize that way. Uh, I'll let comrade uh, General Secretary Angelo speak if he wants. Yeah, how you doing comrades? I was very active during the anti-Vietnam War in the 60s and 70s, very active. And that there was a discussion then, same discussion we're having now, same discussion. There were those who said, we only want people at these rallies who agree with us on everything. They didn't even say that, but that's what they did. On the other hand, there were those of us who said, this is a rally against the Vietnam War, period. It's not a rally for gay rights. It's not a rally for women's liberation. It's not a rally for labor rights. It's a rally against the war in Vietnam. That's what the coalition is about. A single issue is what a coalition is about. Our job as communists is to unify, not disunify, not to put a magnifying glass on all the groups and what their views are on other issues. That's not our job. Our job is to bring unity to the coalition. And that has been from the very beginning. So when the mayor of New York City, who was a Republican, John Lindsay, was opposed to the war in Vietnam, we did not shun him. There were groups in the movement who wanted to shun him. Oh, he's a politician, some of them said. Oh, he's a Republican, some of them said. Even if they were Democrats, they would say the same thing, that he's a Democrat. We're not interested in your views on everything else. That's what people don't get through their mind. This is not a pure than pure coalition. We're not taking a litmus test to see how pure we are on every issue. That's not what we're about. We're trying to stop American imperialism, but we don't use the word American imperialism. Two minutes. In words, we want to stop the war in Vietnam. But the communists who were leading these movements knew we were talking about imperialism. And therefore, we had an action against the war in Vietnam, a demonstration. When we ran it our way, we had in Fifth Avenue, New York, there was a group called the Fifth, you should Google this, the Fifth Avenue Peace Parade Committee. Fifth Avenue Peace near Central Park. And we had a half a million people marching. When the other people did it, they had 100,000. We're not interested to show how pure we are. We're interested in stopping US imperialism by any means necessary. 
And it's all those who, for every reason, opposed the war in Vietnam. There was too much money. They didn't think we would spend any money there, whatever the reason was. We had people in our coalition called the Committee to Support the NLF, the National Liberation Front. I remember them very well. Walter Teague. Walter Teague was the guy who was the head of that. So he worked in the same movement that we worked with, with people who were Democrats or Republicans, who only were opposed to the war for another reason. We had pacifists in that movement. We didn't block anybody out. And that's the idea of a coalition. And young people today, they don't get it. They just don't get it. Thank you. All right. Thank you. I kind of want to also corroborate what our comrade Angelo is saying in terms of the more modern anti-war movement. Uh, the example being the uh, rage against the war machine and the uh, general response from the left side of the spectrum, so to say. I sat through and listened to all of the speeches that were given at the rage against the war machine. It was quite long and there was a lot of really interesting speeches. And all in all, I would actually say it was genuinely anti-war with the exception of like two speakers who... One of them was the uh, lady from the gray zone that kind of veered into her own personal quabbles with the left instead of focusing on the anti-war message. And the other one being Rand Paul, who focused on his own libertarian uh, think tank project instead of the anti-war message. Like, that's pretty much my only critique of the uh, event altogether. But the critique or the attacks I've seen from the uh, ultra left, if I was to call them that, is that they've hyper-focused exclusively on the people that, you know, made really bad boo-boos, didn't use proper phraseology, and basically were more or less not exactly the kind of people you'd want to rub shoulders with at your own little social gathering. And uh, more or less, it's kind of seemed like that uh, any time that they've been having any kind of protest, especially the one that's coming up in a couple of days, that they've been hyper-focusing on trying to get everyone that is absolutely united in lockstep with them on all points of their personal message versus to make it so that it's a purely anti-war movement and coalition building. Hopefully with this next protest with the anti uh, ultra left movement, we'll actually see something uh, decent out of them as well, because it's good to see any kind of anti-war protest, but we shall have to see when the day comes. Thank you. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so I just call them leftists because uh, it's kind of what they embody. Uh, I know that our movement it would be quantifiably on the left wing of things, and so far it's revolutionary. But uh, I just call these people leftists. They might be ultras, whatever, whatever. Uh, they're essentially reverse dialectical materialists. They wish to abstract social relations from real determinative reality, uh, real developments, right, and hold them in a, a stasis, suspend them in time, in order to subject them to uh, pure moral scrutiny in order to purify them, right? They're literally taking something real and trying to uh, extract it in, in, in an attempt to uh, purify it. They're literally doing the opposite of the dialectical uh, materialist method, right? Their understanding is backwards. They are anti-Marxist. No wonder why their positions so often align with the establishment. This is uh, the, the fundamental basis of their, uh, of their application of the science, uh, yeah. Okay, thank you for that, Conrad. Yep, definitely a lot of ideology over material on the left, and I'm going to say on the right as well, but that doesn't mean we can't work with starting a coalition with both. So I will go with one more hand. Uh, yeah, I just wanted to add to uh, the response to Conrad's question. Um, I think you're going to come up with more pushback from other leftists on working with other groups. Um, as opposed to like liberals, like, you know, they'll criticize us for working with liberals or conservatives or libertarians or whatever. Um, and my response would just be, you know, this is the power of the mass organization. You know, it allows us to work with other groups we don't necessarily have, like, align with ideologically on every issue. Um, and that way we can, like, integrate ourselves with the masses. You know, we can't just wait around for everyone to become communists before we work with them. or We're never going to be able to do anything and work with anyone. Um, but, you know, this allows us to integrate ourselves with the masses, work with them on issues we agree with, and push them towards other positions that we hold. Um, otherwise, if we refuse to like work with anyone else, we're just going to isolate ourselves and like fall into more obscurity. So just wanted to add that. Great. Wonderful addition. And yeah, that was talked about in the material. So um, we're going to go back to the slides and finish it up and then we'll go to wrapping up the meeting and we'll have another discussion.
Okay, the last section is on the popular front in practice. So our last passage is from a history of the Communist International or the Comintern. The passage describes how the policy of the People's Front coalition building was put into action during the period of the war against fascism, World War II. When Hitler attacked Russia, the communist parties promptly reversed their policy. Instead of the People's Convention due to meet in August 1941, the CPGB, the Communist Party of Great Britain, organized a series of conferences to discuss ways of increasing production. It would turn its energies to mobilizing opinion to deal with every form of interference with the joint war effort. Quote, it is necessary for British workers not only to support government measures for aid to the Soviet Union, but to act themselves to secure maximum production. Communist candidates standing in by-elections were withdrawn to, quote, avoid misunderstanding. It was essential to form the broadest national united front around the Churchill government for the common aim of the defeat of fascism. It was essential to have a completely different approach to persons and organizations with whom we have been in conflict in the past. The ILP, which put up a candidate in a by-election against the national government candidate, was said to be playing Hitler's game. In July 1941, the Communist Party of Great Britain began a, quote, second front campaign. In a statement on the colonies and the war, it said the colonial peoples could help in winning the battle for freedom. They will understand the need for the immediate building of a great united front for the defeat of Hitler. This takes precedence over every other issue at the present moment. It deplored Gandhi's narrow and unrealistic spirit in continuing to emphasize the struggle against British rule. Opposition to the war was, quote, detrimental to the true interests of the Indian people. The French Communist Party, after the 22nd of June, 1941, declared, for us, there is no division into communists, socialists, radicals, Catholics, or de Gaulle followers. For us, there are only Frenchmen fighting Hitler and his agents. The earlier slogan, neither Churchill nor Hitler, was dropped in favor of vive l'Angleterre. Podmore refers to the effrontery of the American CP, Communist Party, in appealing to the African Americans to suspend their agitation for employment in war industries, for principle of equal pay for equal work, and for the abolition of racial segregation in the armed forces. This they condemned as sabotage of the war effort. And that concludes the last section. Okay. So um, what I was going to say is with the coalitions and stuff in the past, um, like the Russian Revolution worked with the anarchists, what's the name, Makhnov or whatever. And of course they didn't work very well together and eventually had to like take over Ukraine back from them. And then also in, in Spain had to work with anarchists and Soviet Union gave a lot of support to their work and yeah and also like more recent coalitions for example in um brazil with lula a lot of parties were like with in a coalition behind him like the marxist leninist party like social democratic parties liberal parties and stuff because of course the most important thing is um defeating fascist bolsonaro uh hi yeah who'd asked about the opposition arguments um Obviously, I can't go over all of them, but the fascist offensive and the tasks of the Communist International by Gregory Dimitrov has a section that says the chief arguments of the opponents of the United Front. And it has a couple of kind of the common arguments. And you'll see a lot of the themes present today. If you can find that particular chapter heading, you can get some answers from that. Thank you. Excellent. Excellent book that you can get from New Outlook Publishers. Coalition building, and it comes to when people criticize us for working with people who may have chauvinist tendencies, people from conservative circles that might be transphobic or uh, that people might think are racist or whatever. I myself am a transgender woman. 
I went to the Rage Against the War Machine event in Corvallis. I am willing to work with anybody who is anti-imperialist if they're willing to put aside their disagreements with me as well for the time being. If somebody at one of our events attacks a transgender comrade or a black comrade, then that is a whole nother thing. We will oppose that. But when it comes to the actual working with them, we're going to do that through the event as long as you know it sticks on the issue that we're working on. And now I have a comrade, a general secretary, who wants to make a comment. Yeah, comrades, um, I want to mention two things. If we're at a, a rally and someone breaks the disunity and attacks not just us, but attacks our view on other issues, we should carefully dismiss what they're saying, explain that this is no place for that. We're here because we oppose the war in Vietnam. We're not here for any other reason. So please refrain from your side remarks. That's number one. Yeah, I just like to talk about the purpose of building, like the practical aspect of building a coalition, right? And this is an argument that I got from a lot of leftists against building coalition was, oh, well, this one person, I don't like them, or I don't agree with this one person's ideological position or whatever. Right. Or this person's a racist or this person's a homophobe, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Right. Here's my what I would always say to them is the our current state of affairs, our current economic and political system is inevitably going to push us towards more and more war because the military industrial complex will not stop until the bombs fall, essentially. Right. And when the bombs fall and we're all wiped out in nuclear Armageddon. Would you be proud to say, well, I didn't fight for peace or I didn't attend a peace rally because someone I didn't like was going to show up, right? Is that the sort of statement that you would want to say, right? Will you then, or will you be smug about it and say, and smugly say, I remained ideological pure, ideologically pure to the end, right? I only hung out with the most ideologically pure people and didn't associate with anyone that I disagreed with in even the slightest, because then, you know what, go start a party of one by yourself and hang out in a basement, right? Because I don't know what else to say to you at that point. That's all, thank you. Thank you. Yeah, so um, I'm not going to name any names. Uh, however, there was uh, one particular uh, self-proclaimed Marxist-Leninist who um, online, um, they mentioned um, the Rage Against the War Machine, and they explicitly um, went against it because they believed, or actually, they, they genuinely thought that they should, it was responsible to oppose that event because it was filled with LaRoucheites, right? That was, that was the big fundamental disagreement, was people who ideologically subscribed with uh, LaRouche and his ideas, and I just want to echo and what uh, essentially everyone else said here. I mean, fantastic comments on this issue. It is fundamentally just anti-strategic, anti-Marxist to say, for instance, oh, well, this person uh, agrees or this these people agree with a particular person I don't like. Therefore, I mean, unless if it's literally Adolf Hitler, I mean, I would say, yeah, then we should probably be working with them it, on the issue of, for instance, war, in which case we are literally going to tumble onto more and more forever wars if we continue to just have this uh, ideologically uh, puritanist uh, uh, worldviews. So uh, that's all I had to say. Yes, thank you for that, comrade. And, you know, just to point out, like, it is exactly who they were fighting against in the against the war against fascism in the 40s was Hitler. Uh, William Z. Foster, the general secretary of the Communist Party, was proud to be a strike breaker during that time because the goal was to fight fascism. That was the change. Yeah, so in, in past classes, we've, we've discussed how the same, um, the same uh, conflicts in society that creates revolutionaries also creates uh, reactionaries, such as unemployment, recession, um, just the overall uh, decay of capitalism. Now, 
the workers who are affected by these crises are going to be looking for a camp that uh, opposes or that's fighting against these crises. Now, if the if the left isn't going to capture the disgruntled workers because they seem impure, where who else is going to? Well, the fascists, the reactionaries, the fascists, the ones that are controlled by monopoly capital are going to be the ones to uh, catch them. And they're going to bring them in with slogans that sound revolutionary. So, you know, the way I see it is if we're not willing to work with some working class people that have reactionary views, we're essentially handing them over to the fascist camp. So that's all. Absolutely. Thank you for that addition, comrade. And correction, uh, my apologies. That was Earl Browder, the general secretary that said that, not William Z. Foster. All right. Okay, comrades. I'm sure you all agree that for the last year, we have entered a new historical era. Okay. The era of fighting the Fourth Reich. Okay. Which is taking us to World War III and the end of humanity. Now let's take a lesson from our enemy, the Fourth Reich itself. You know, they are dialectical. They're smart. They will use our vocabulary, our words. They will talk about Russian imperialism. I heard Macron talk about Russian imperialism. We are here CNN, I watch them. It's interesting. And they talk about Russian imperialism. You know, they don't have no problem to build coalitions against the enemy, which is Russia and uh, us. You know, they have no problems with that at all. Uh, and uh, we need to, to learn from that. We need to do the opposite. You know, they're more dialectical than many of us, you know, so let's, let's do this, you know, and no surprise that um, they have no problem with ultra left that uh, claim Russia to be imperialist. You know, the one who say, oh, Let's not take side between two imperialist robbers on the back of the working class, you know, the ultra left. They have no problem with those at all. They use the same vocabularies. I remember CNN back in 2014 would say, oh, the so-called Donbass republics. 90 Guess seconds. You know, the KKE in Greece, lately for the last couple of years or so, they say the so-called Donbass republics, same vocabulary. Do you believe this? You know, that's all, comrade. Yep, absolutely. Thank you for that. I wanted to say that for this weekend in New York, we went to the U.S. International U.S.-Cuba Normalization Conference uh, in defense of Cuba, its revolution, and its people, and against the imperialist aggression and re repression of Cuba by the United States. Um, ending the embargo, ending the sanctions, ending the blockade, pulling us out of Guantanamo Bay, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. We were there and were able to talk to and work with a lot of different parties, some of which haven't been too nice to us in the past, some of which we disagree with on a lot of other issues, but we were able to work with them there. There was Workers' World Party, who we actually agree with on a lot of issues and work well with. There was Socialist Workers' Party. There were people from the CPUSA. Obviously, the CPUSA is a force that the PCUSA is not too fond of. It's in our history, but we worked with them there. We worked with people that were from Cuba, that were from Canada, that were from different countries. We worked with uh, people that were from the DSA there, um, and we got great pictures and everything with them. We exchanged contact information, and we're going to be using the school at some point to help get the message for their campaign out there and to have them on for some sort of webinar or something. This was very important because Cuba is a unifier. Most socialist and progressive organizations support Cuba. And it's very necessary right now when you think of how long they have suffered under the blockade. We put aside the issues that we disagreed with them on. There were some there that tried to push on issues that we disagreed on, that tried to push on Ukraine. We didn't go into that. We stopped it right there and we said, no, we're not going to get into an argument about whether or not to support Putin or Zelensky. That's not what today's conference is about. Today's conference is about Cuba 
and we stuck to that. And I think that coming out of this conference, the entire coalition on this is going to do very strong work and we're going to be a part of it. So um, that's what I had to say about this weekend. And as, as I get home to Oregon, I'm going to be following up on all those contacts I made and uh, using the school to do that. And by the way, we made international contacts too that we'll have probably separate webinars with. So really great work. You know, I was able to also go to the 9-11 Memorial and the Stonewall Memorial. So I just wanted to bring that up because those are two places of incredible tragedy to the American people that shaped our nation as we know it today. And so, yeah, it was a really great trip and I was glad that I was able to go and especially meet comrades. But without going into history, our position was fundamentally different than where the party comes from. We will have to understand that. And so there were people of ideological persuasion in World War II who did not agree with our view that fighting fascism was predominant. And even to the issue that we called, and all the unions we controlled, and there was a lot of them, we told them no strike. So the, what I call the ultra left at the time, and some people may call it a different name, disagreed with us on that. And that's probably some of that still thinking going on. I hold true to what we, we said then, that fascism was the number one enemy and we will work with all forces against fascism. And so uh, Browder said clearly in one of the readings tonight, uh, he was happy that he was called a strike breaker because it, it was fighting the fascist forces that we were telling our workers not to go on strike. I just wanted to mention that. But everything else that said about the LaRouche people, I was also there. I seen comrades had their heads bloodied. But you know, dialectics tells us that what was true on Monday may not be true on Tuesday or Wednesday. And I think that's important. We have to remember that. So I just wanna leave LaRouche is dead and uh, he's gone with. And uh, his, his movement is splintered among two or three tendencies. And we're not here to resurrect him or his tendencies. We're here to work with all people for whatever reason that they're opposed to sending money to the fascists in the Ukraine. Today. It's really very simple. And I just want to end it with that without having a debate. And I want to thank everybody for coming tonight.